Well, the phone was ringing again in my office on the fourth floor of Crary McFeeder's Hall. It rang a lot. It rang persistently. I had come uh, just a year earlier, my wife and my fifth grade daughter, to join Dr. David McKenna's transition team as he took up the responsibilities of becoming the third president of Asbury Theological Seminary. And uh, it was an interesting kind of time for the seminary. We were facing some significant financial challenges, also facing some enrollment challenges in terms of the institution. And so Dr. McKenna, who had been my mentor at Spring Arbor College and University where he had been president, invited me to come and take on the responsibilities of vice president for advancement and professor of uh, Christian leadership. And under my supervision were some key areas, admissions, retention, financial aid, alumni relations, marketing and public relations, and uh, fundraising and a variety of other things that didn't fit anywhere else. There was a bit of a challenge because Dr. McKenna was the first non-United Methodist to be selected as the president of this institution. And then he proceeded to hire two more non-United Methodists, which meant that the Free Methodist Church looked like it was planning a hostile takeover of Asbury <laughs> Theological Seminary. So three of the, of the five leaders who had come as a part of the transition team to help move the seminary um, further into God's plan and God's uh, desires for the institution really came from a little different but Wesleyan background. The phone was still ringing. And so I picked up the phone and, and there on the phone was a familiar voice because a year earlier, as I mentioned, Nancy and Andrea and I had moved from Virginia Beach, Virginia, where we'd had the privilege of being part of the founding team to start what became Regent University. And it was the voice of the senior elder, the chairman of the board of the church that we had attended. And this uh, little evangelical Presbyterian church had grown from an initial congregation of 50 to 75 during a five to seven year period to over 2,000 on Sunday morning. It was an absolute amazing thing. Much of that growth was the direct result of the church being committed to allowing the Holy Spirit to move any way and every way that he chose. And it was under the leadership of a very young pastor, dynamic, powerful preacher, great worship leader, that the church had grown. As I picked up the phone and heard the voice, I knew something was amiss. And Peter said to me, David, I have some difficult news that I need to give you, and I also have a request that I hope you'll prayerfully consider. And he began to tell me that this young pastor who had done such dynamic work had fallen back into sexual sin and was going to have to be dismissed from the ministry. There was going to be a congregational meeting the next week where this would be announced to the congregation. Now, I'd had the privilege of teaching the, the, the adult Sunday school class that had grown from around 50 to two or 300 on Sunday morning, and they just felt that they needed someone to come back who loved the congregation and who had some kind of spiritual ministry presence to help guide the congregation through that particular journey. I paused for a moment and asked then and Dr. McKenna if I could be released to go back uh, home to my home church and be a part of this very difficult transition time for them. And David said, yes, of course. So I arrived and that afternoon I met with this young pastor and he was broken and grieving. He said to me, Dave, he said, I, 
I, I don't know what happened. He said, I'd struggled with this problem within my sexual orientation for years during college and early on in my seminary training, but God had given me the victory. And I was walking in peace. He was married, had four children, four young children. God had blessed his ministry. It was an absolutely amazing thing to watch and see Sunday after Sunday. But somehow, he didn't realize that he was victim of what is suggested here in Hebrews 12, of a besetting sin. Each of us have Achilles' heels in our spiritual armor. And for him, there was this particular challenge dealing with his sexual orientation that he had to deal with. And he began to, out of the success, as Dr. Martin suggested here, we need to pray, right, and recognize that God is the one that keeps us secure even in the face of our successes. And I found over the years since, in terms of my own ministry to pastors in crisis, that often it's not the things that are negative that defeats a pastor, but the things that are the successes and the positives, because we let our guard down. We don't realize, and we begin to think and embrace the adulations that we're getting from the congregation. Oh, you're the greatest, Pastor. Wow, look at the growth we've had. Isn't it amazing that we've had to go from one service to two services to three services in order to accommodate all of this? Look at the people that are being baptized. Look at the number of folk that are getting filled with the Holy Spirit. And David had experienced that particular kind of adulation, and he let his guard down. And before he knew it, he had slipped back into the practices that he felt under the convicting power of the Holy Spirit were things that he needed to let go of and lay aside. He said to me, Dave, I realized I was deceived. And I said, talk to me about that. He said, God did not immediately lift the anointing. He said, I went out and had a relationship. But the next Sunday when I preached, people still came to Jesus. The church continued to grow. There was continuing to be the signs of God's presence. And so he didn't lift his hand. And then a second encounter. And following that Sunday, the Spirit of God still moved in the midst of the congregation. Still began to, or still was working in ways that were transforming people's hearts and lives. And so he said, Sunday after Sunday, I began to be deceived into thinking that while the scripture said that this kind of behavior that I was involved in was, was not correct, was wrong, was sin, that for me, because the blessing was still there, God was making an exception. I had an unusual or unique need that God was honoring by not lifting his presence. Then he said this most profound thing. He said, I've forgotten the great truth that the power of the word and the presence of the Holy Spirit operates not because of the vessel, but in spite of the vessel. And so often, I think, as I've worked over these last five decades now or more with uh, pastors and other Christian leaders in crisis, I've heard that story. You know, I, I've had great success. And then I've let my guard down. And in that besetting sin in my life that each of us have, that Achilles heel in our spiritual armor, as I mentioned earlier, we begin to let that creep back in to our ministry activity. 
And before we know it, because we've been deceived, because our ministry continues to bear fruit, continues to be successful, we begin to think that we're the source of that blessing and that success. In Hebrews chapter 12, we have a formula that I've used uh, frequently with uh, people who are in this particular form of, of a struggle and temptation. And it's one that I return to over and over again in my own life because I know that uh, what Satan would love to do here I am at age 72 in the capstone years of my own journey, that if he can get a Christian leader to stumble at the end of their journey, then all of what the Christian leader has accomplished up to that point can be compromised, can be damaged, and be destroyed. And so Hebrews 12 becomes for me a checklist, one that I use in my own life and I hope will be helpful to you as you think about your ministry and be alert to the fact that Satan still is a roaring lion going about seeking whom he may devour. And during this season of Lent, it's the perfect time for us to remember the price that was paid to deliver us from all of our sins and to keep us in a posture of humility before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Hebrews 12, as you know, follows Hebrew 11. That's just the way it works. And in essence, it has this tremendous list of, of uh, people that had been faithful. I, I want to be faithful. I'm not going to make the list in Hebrews 11, probably, unless they rewrite it. But fundamentally, there are all these people that are paraded before us as those who had been faithful. And 12 begins with this idea, therefore, and as you know, in terms of biblical exegesis, Whenever you see therefore, you want to figure out uh, you know, what the therefore is there for. And the therefore is for the purpose of reminding us that we too, even though we may never get our names listed in the 11th chapter of Hebrews, have an opportunity to live faithfully and victoriously as we walk with obedience like these in chapter 11 have walked. And he says, therefore, let's pull it up if you've got your Bible there with you. Let's take a look at what it says specifically in terms of uh, the specific quotation. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. One of the things that's been sobering to me is that the longer I've lived and the longer I've ministered, the greater the number of people that I've had the privilege of being a spiritual witness to and been a spiritual mentor to and a spiritual leader for. And one of the things I think that helps me keep my guard up spiritually during these times when Satan will come in like a flood, like a roaring lion, is to remember the people who have gone before me, the people who are currently in front of me, and the people, God willing, should Jesus tarry and I live uh, another day, the people that will come after me whom my life will influence. The elders petitioned the uh, presbytery and asked if uh, I could come back as the interim pastor for a year. And so again, I came back to Asbury and asked David McKenna if he would release me from my responsibilities here at the seminary to go back and become the interim pastor for this congregation. It was tough. It was tough. Because there was a great cloud of witnesses in that congregation that had been deeply impacted 
by this young pastor's ministry. And now that he had fallen, there was all kinds of reactions. One of the things that they did, which I appreciated much, the, uh, the board of elders and the presbytery allowed us to keep uh, this pastor on salary and allowed him to continue with his family to live in the manse for a year and then paid for the various kinds of counseling that not only he needed, but that also was needed by his family and his four young children. Uh, that was greeted differently by different people in the congregation. There were some, about 25% of the congregation that immediately left the church because they felt there was no way they wanted any of their contributions to be supporting a fallen sinner like this pastor. They were so hurt, so disillusioned, so incredibly distressed. The other, there was another group, about another 25% of the congregation, that said, well, he's confessed and he's forgiven, why can't he stay as our pastor? Why don't we just let him continue on? And again, when that didn't occur, that group left. And so we were left with about 1,000 people who were working through their own spiritual journey. And regularly, my office would have people coming through with various kinds of faith crises because of what had happened with this young pastor who didn't guard his Achilles heels spiritually. And they would say things like, I had three couples come in believing that they should get a divorce. And I said, well, why? And they said, well, the pastor did our premarital counseling. And while he was doing it, he was in sin. So perhaps he didn't give us good counsel. Maybe we should never have gotten married. I then had young people struggling with their own sexual identity who came into me and said, Pastor Dave, I, I, I'm so confused. I, I, I look to our pastor because I was struggling with the same kinds of things that that he was struggling with. And, and if he couldn't be victorious in that, how in the world am I going to be victorious? And day after day, week after week, during that year of transition for that congregation, I was dealt with a cloud of witnesses who essentially were in faith crisis because their pastor had not deliberately, intentionally guarded his soul and particularly guarded those areas of besetting sins that would invade him. We are surrounded by such a cloud of witnesses. I'm thinking in my own life, not just of the people that I've ministered to, but my own family. What would the impact be on my wife and my daughter? What would the impact be on my grandchildren if I didn't guard carefully, deeply, those areas of my life where I know Satan could have his heyday if I wasn't alert, surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. That's one of the things that we need to keep in mind as we come through Lent. Thank God for thousands of years of people who have demonstrated to us you can live victoriously in a fallen world that continues to influence us in the wrong direction, that continues to whisper on our ears that what we believe to be true is not true, we can live as more than conquerors, more than conquerors, and that we've been guarded and guided 
in terms of our faith. The second phrase in, in this particular portion of Scripture in Hebrews 12 basically says, throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. I love the King James version of that. It talks about the besettings of sins, those things that we're more susceptible to. There are certain things that come along as temptations that probably for many of us don't have much play or much authority. But there are other things, and Satan is so strategic in these, where we have susceptibilities. And so we need to exercise a certain degree of volition. The first is this understanding that we're being watched. I love the story of the guy that broke into the house and started robbing the place, and he heard a voice in the darkness saying, God is watching. And he stopped for a minute and uh, didn't hear anything else, so he started robbing the place again, and he heard the voice say, God is watching. Finally, he found a light and turned it on and saw a parrot in the corner. <laughs> and the parrot looked at him and said, God is watching. And the thief said, I don't care, I'm not a religious man. And then he heard this blood-curdling growl behind him. And he said, what was that? And the parrot said, that's God. He's a 200-pound Rottweiler. So that first idea that we're being watched, right? Very carefully. But the second here is that we have a responsibility to be proactive, to be volitional that we need to take the actions necessary. I was, one of my first ministry responsibilities was to serve as a student chaplain uh, in a Bible college and residential Christian high school in Toronto. And uh, after a, a series of, of uh, revival services, I had a young man come to me and say, uh, Chaplain Dave, I, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm really struggling with temptation. And he said, I don't know how to deal with it. And I said, well, What's the nature of your temptation? He says, I'm, I, I'm really tempted sexually. And I said, well, t tell me how this occurs. When does this occur? He said, every time I read Playboy magazine, I, I'm, I'm tempted sexually. So I told him the story about the guy that went to the doctor. And he said, doc, it hurts when I do this. And the doctor said, then don't do that. <laughs> don't do that. And this, you remember, this very hard saying of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount where he says, listen, if your eye causes you to offend, then pluck it out. If your arm causes you to offend, then cut it off. Now, what was Jesus exhorting there? He wasn't suggesting dismemberment as the solution. He was saying that if what you look at causes you and makes you susceptible to sin, then on those things, act as if you were blind. You can't see them at all. They're not visible to you. And if what you handle causes you to be led into sin, then act as if you had no hand and no arm to handle them. And we could go on with the anatomy. If, if where your feet take you, in terms of places you visit and places you go, if those kinds of things lead you into sin, then act as if you had no legs and you weren't capable of walking into those places. We have a volitional responsibility that essentially when we ask God to deliver us, he has the power and authority to deliver us, but we have a responsibility to be obedient, 
to follow through. That's part of our Wesleyan discipline, that we have a responsibility to take the kind of actions or resist the kind of actions that come across our path. And so if what you do, what you see, where you go, what you handle enhances and energizes that besetting susceptibility, then stop looking there, stop going there, stop handling that, stop going in that direction. I said to my pastor friend, how did this start? And he said, well, he said, I I would go by this place where people with my particular sexual orientation hung out. I knew where they were. And one day I thought, well, what could it hurt? I'll just pop in. And now you know the rest of the story. That discipline of not going, touching, seeing, handling is something that Hebrews suggest is really critical for us. That we need to essentially resist those calls and those wooings into those areas of our life where we know that if we go there, it's going to hurt. Then don't do that. Don't do that. The third point here for me is this wonderful exhortation about Jesus. That not only do we need to keep our eyes on the fact that we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, past, present, and future, the most significant being God himself, And second, that we need to exercise the volition in terms of the disciplines of walking in holiness and in wholeness. But that thirdly, we need to turn our eyes upon Jesus and look full in his wonderful face and let the things of earth, particularly the temptations, essentially fade away in the light of his glory and grace. Listen to these words. He says, fixing our eyes upon Jesus, who initiated, and the promises continues to perfect our faith. I think of 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 15. For the love of Christ constrains us. I love that word in the the Greek. The love of God. The more I look into the loving face of Jesus, and the more I love the loving face of Jesus, the greater is the empowerment because of Christ's loving presence in my life to allow myself to be with his help constrained. Because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead, and he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. One of the things that we Protestants are disadvantaged by is that almost always, except in our case here, uh, the cross is empty. I grew up in a French Roman Catholic community in northern Canada, and everywhere you went, uh, the crucifix was present. There was always this reminder of the horrific price Jesus paid for my redemption and for my perfection. The horrific price that he paid. As Protestants, our our crosses are empty. Essentially, we look Uh, at uh, the redemptive act and the the redemptive work of the kingdom from the side of Christ risen, seated at the right hand of God the Father through the empty tomb. Jesus no longer hangs on our cross. 
because we know the rest of the story. But because we've lost the imagery of the crucifixion, it can be too easy for us as Protestant Christians to take for granted the suffering. Another scripture says, as you move along in this Hebrews 12, you have not yet resisted unto the letting of blood. You know why? Because he let his blood for us. In his blood, we have forgiveness of sin. And, you know, I was raised in an old Pentecostal holiness environment. And one of our great songs we sang, you know, every week and three times probably Sunday evenings was there's power, power, power in the blood. Power in the blood. Power in the blood. There is wonder working power in the blood. And so as we come into this particular time of Lent, what a wonderful opportunity for us Protestants to kind of recover what our Catholic brothers and sisters are reminded of daily in their worship, of the horrific price that Jesus paid so that he as the perfect lamb would shed his blood so that we could be forgiven and have the power and potential through access to the throne because of the blood of Christ, to be able to live victoriously. My name, your name, will never appear in Hebrews 11. But every one of those saints in that great hall of faith are inspirations to us that it is possible to live even in the worst and most difficult of circumstances with the assurance that we have been saved and redeemed and freed indeed by the blood of Christ. We have a little gift for you from the Beeson International Center and the Beeson School of Practical Theology. It's a little cross. Something when I was a teenager, my pastor suggested, knowing my proclivities as a young man full of all kinds of vim and vinegar, that I needed to keep my eyes on Jesus. And so he suggested to me that I carry a little cross in my pocket. There's a wonderful poem around that particular theme. And so we would like to give you a gift this day from the Beeson School of Practical Theology. We'd like to say to you, take the cross of Jesus with you, child of weary and of woe, his blood will comfort give you. Take it then, where'er you go. We can live victoriously. And the formula of Hebrews 12, let's never forget who's watching. Every once in a while, the Holy Spirit need, may need to growl. But most often, it's a gentle, gentle prompting. We need to focus our understanding that we have a part a responsibility in resisting temptation. Thankfully, within our Wesleyan heritage, we've had this idea of being banded together and having accountability groups that we can resist temptation in the community of the committed as we will bear our souls and risk taking on the responsibility or letting others have input into our lives who can ask on occasion, Dave, how's it going with that besetting sin? Boy, that's, that's sobering when you know you've got a friend or two 
who's an ever-present witness. And then walking consistently in this wonderful assurance that because he lives and is seated at the right hand of God the Father, because of the cross, you and I can not only be forgiven of our sins, but because of the power in the blood, we can live victoriously so that perhaps in somebody's journal, maybe a wife or a grandchild, they've created their own little Hebrews 11, and your name is written there. And all of God's people said, amen.